Welcome to the Bear Market Brief Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and I'm happy to report that we've made it through 2020. Now, we've covered a fairly wide variety of issues over our episodes in 2020, so this time, I wanted to look back. In hindsight, what were the key trends in Russia this year? How did they evolve? And looking forward, what might change in 2021? Joining us this time is Andras Tostsifra, Russia analyst and author of the No Yardstick blog. I've been reading his blog a few years and really recommend it. You can check it out at noyardstick.com. So with all that said, let's dive in. Andras, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Hello, it's good to be here. So to kick things off, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background in Eurasia studies, and you also have a blog that I'm sure the listeners would love to hear about too. Yeah, so uh, hello everyone. I am a political analyst, uh, originally from Hungary, hence the unusual name. Uh, and um, I, as you mentioned, I have a blog entitled No Yardstick, which I've been writing for, I think, more than 10 years now, which focused originally on a commentary on Russian politics. Lately, I've been focusing more on the regions and uh, the relationship between uh, the Moscow federal government and uh, regional governments, governors and regional politics, um, simply because... Um, I think that's uh, uh, emerging as a as an important uh, political development, or it has emerged as an important political development uh, in the past couple of years. I have worked in uh, Brussels and I worked in Berlin uh, for think tanks and in, and in the European Parliament uh, before. Right now, I'm working for a, um, a business risk intelligence company, but the blog itself uh, is the stable point, and uh, that's why I have had the uh, the honor to, uh, to 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 get to know a lot of other researchers in the field, including you, and um, I think that's more or less the background that I have. It's mostly political analysis. So, would highly recommend listeners you go check out his blog. He has some uh, really really fascinating insights on Russia. Turning to Russia and today's meat and potatoes, uh, this is the last edition of the Bear Market Brief podcast for 2020. And as such, I want to do two things. Uh, first, to look back on this interesting, I think is a diplomatic way of putting it, year we've all had, uh, and then look forward to 2021. So kind of from a from a 30,000 foot viewpoint, looking back on what's happened this year, less the you know individual micro stories, but more the broader trends. What are, what would you say is kind of been the kind of the, the the key threads that have been visible in Russia looking back. So if you're talking about politics, of course, we all remember that the year started with a bang, uh, namely uh, Vladimir Putin um, announcing a thorough revamp of the constitution, which uh, uh, first looked as if he as if he had been preparing to uh, uh, to preparing the ground for uh, whoever comes after him or, or or the system that would come after him, uh, there were rumors that balance of power between the different um, institutions in the government would be uh, readjusted. And what happened instead, and uh, the jury is still out on whether this was uh, originally planned or Putin uh, sort of made this up on the fly, um, is uh, the position of the president. Uh, became stronger and uh, there are now more guarantees for uh, former presidents, uh, for instance, uh, uh, they can take up uh, lifetime uh, lifetime positions in uh, the Federation Council or uh, they will not be able to be uh, prosecuted for crimes committed after they leave office. 
at the same time, we saw the emergence of uh, previously obscure institutions like the State Council, which is a an advisory body uh, chaired by the president and uh, uh, mostly made up of, re of regional leaders, uh, which left us guessing for a long time whether that was going to be the position that Putin would take if he uh, were to choose to uh, retire from office. And parallel to this, we also we also saw the, um, the uh, we also saw uh, the new prime minister Mikhail Mishustin sort of throwing his weight around, which more and more so towards the end of the year when he uh, sort of asserted his position in the government. Uh, Mishustin was appointed primarily, or so it seemed at the beginning of the year, to uh, oversaw uh, to oversee the uh, implementation of the national projects, the uh, 12 big development projects that uh, uh, Putin announced in 2018 um, for the next six years, two of which has already passed, um, and that, did, that was not going well. And of course, then COVID came, and that became the central story. And it is, to me, if, if, if I want, if I were to um, summarize it in a nutshell, the year was, um, the year's main story was the difference between what Putin planned and what happened. And the fact that even so, even with the pandemic, he was able to, to implement some of his agenda, but the message that this implementation sent to both Russians and to the world was very different from what I think he wanted to send. So to dive into, you know, what Putin wants, and there's kind of uh, a piece of advice that echoes around the, the Russia studies field, which is don't play Kremlinology too much. It's too opaque. There's no way we can truly know what Putin wants, you know, what is actually happening behind closed doors in Moscow. And to now completely ignore that advice, looking back on the year, what do you think Putin wanted. And I think we actually discussed this um, on an earlier episode of the podcast, talking about what Putin wants. Now, looking back, what did Putin want at the beginning of the year? And how did it, what actually transpired? I mean, nobody would have wanted a global pandemic. That's obvious. But yeah. <laughs> how did what actually transpired? How did the pandemic impact what the optics of his, his plans were? Uh, so yeah, I, uh, first of all, I would like to I would like to avoid a trap of of, of deciding here and now what, whether Putin wanted to retire or not because we don't know that it's uh, it, it is it, it, it is it is the question that he probably wants us to be guessing, but uh, uh, I I don't have you know my I don't have sources in the Kremlin as uh, uh, some Russia watchers do or claim to claim to do. All I can say is that uh, the constitutional reform. The way it was executed suggested to me that uh, there were two parts. First of all, Putin wanted to create an institutional arrangement in which whichever he, whichever way he chooses to run again in 2024 uh, or to retire or when I say retire, of course, I just mean retire from the presidency, but not from, uh, not from the system as a whole, he would be safe. He would be safe politically, he would be safe physically, he would be safe financially, uh, legally. Um, and this, I believe, he did achieve. The other, uh, the other part of the constitutional reform, and this is often ignored, uh, or, or, or at least uh, the discussions about it are more superseded, are superseded by discussions uh, about Putin's place and, uh, and his future, 
is that it was going to be a, a sort of synthesis, uh, a, a summary of, of, of what Putinism is, what the past 20 years, um, or how the past 20 years have changed Russia uh, from a from the centralization of uh, of, of, of uh, political power and fiscal revenues, uh, which I think is one of the big stories of the past two decades, to the sort of the conservative agenda that uh, uh, that Putin um, uh, pushed in, especially in the past decade, to how Russia is governed and how it should be governed. And uh, it was going to be a celebration almost of Putinism. And what we what we saw at the beginning of the year was a kind of expected timeline from the adoption of the constitution uh, by referendum uh, through the um, victory day parades, which uh, if you remember uh, a lot of um, foreign dignitaries and uh, has a state were invited to and uh, these two together uh, you know knowing also how important the her, the uh, memory of the second world war and the victory in the second world war is in uh, sort of uh, the, the historical view worldview of, of Putin um, and his system should have amounted to a, uh, a grand legitimation of Putinism and 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 what, what whatever it embodies about ideologically, but mostly politically, and this I think didn't happen. And what the pandemic did instead is that it exposed, um, first of all, the imbalances that exist in Russian politics in this in this system of governance that 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 uh, came to define uh, Putinism, this this over centralized. Uh, system of governance where um, most regions depend on uh, federal funding or funding from the federal budget, which is basically redistributed income uh, that flows in uh, partially from the regions. The lack of political power on lower, uh, on lower levels and, and how it's concentrated in Moscow. And when I say Moscow, I don't, don't just say the, uh, I don't just mean the federal government, I also mean Moscow the capital. And, um, and, and, and how much and how much uh, discontent, and how much, uh, how many different kinds of grievances this over-centralized system needs to keep under wraps in order to ensure its own stability. So that became the message, which I'm pretty sure was not what Putin wanted the message to be. So turning to, I think, federalization has been a, or centralization Reduction of federalization has certainly been a key theme of Putinism. You know, going back to the '90s, you know, regional governors, regional leadership really mattered, and that has increasingly not been the case. I think it's safe to say, with maybe the exception of of Moscow itself. Uh, and yet, you've argued that this seems to be changing. I think the fact that there's a pandemic, the fact that there's these national projects that can't be completely implemented all at the federal level. There's a lot of um, need for, I guess, rubber to meet the road as far as policy implementation. I mean, especially, I think COVID is the most critical example of this. So do you see this sort of institutional framework? And we'll talk about institutional framework more, but do you see the, the federal relationship changing? Is it sustainable? Uh, I don't see it changing, but it's not sustainable in, in short. So um, 
What uh, the the pandemic and how it was handled in the regions, and uh, especially how uh, it was handled fiscally, uh, the, the sort of the fiscal imbalances that that it uh, uh, that it exposed, um, and the political imbalances that it, that, that it exposed. Like, uh, if if I'm really going to simplify uh, what happened in 2020, uh, 2020 with the pandemic and regions, uh, I would say that uh, Putin was trying to uh, push the. Uh, uh, the responsibility for handling the pandemic uh, onto regional governments and uh, at the, who at the same time did not have the necessary fiscal means to do so and not and did not have the necessary experience uh, it was a I, I don't want to call it a panic decision because uh, I'm I, I have no idea whether it was indeed a, a sort of a brush decision that needed to be taken and it wasn't uh, sufficiently thought through but it was certainly a, a a forced decision, or it seemed like a forced decision. Um, what what then happened is that uh, regional, some regional governments uh, tried to uh, actually use these powers, and uh, and and they were, but they were either looking for uh, nods from the center, uh, or they were uh, not getting the necessary fiscal aid that they. That they needed uh, to implement certain decisions, for instance, to support uh, local businesses or to support local uh, local hospitals. Regions as a whole uh, had been a fairly you know sorry bunch when it came to when it came to when it came to budgeting and and political powers. Like and, and that's and that's that's something that 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 is that is really like this started under Yeltsin, but uh, it, it it has been really the story of the past two decades. And and yeah. And one of the things I would I would add just for the context for listeners is that it's not just that these regions uh, now it, to, 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 to clarify here, there's a difference between Moscow, the city of Moscow, Moscow Oblast and regions, not to single out Saransk, but it's coming to mind for whatever reason, uh, a big difference in fiscal capacity normally. But keep in mind, COVID is happening after many regions or the whole of Russia faced a recession. 2014, 2015, and then years of stagnation. So these regional budgets, to begin with, in a lot of cases, weren't in a great place. So important context. And please continue. Yes, exactly. So uh, the interestingly, the, interestingly, though, when you mentioned regional budgets and how and their position, regional budgets actually uh, were able in 2019 to uh, to accumulate some reserves. Not all of them, but 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 a lot of regional budgets accumulated reserves. It was a better year. Um, it, there was there was more investment. The national projects uh, started, which again, like as as, as you also observed, uh, I think a, maybe a year ago, uh, you wrote an article uh, on this that the regional the regional uh, sorry the national projects uh, were not implemented fully, and the the money allocated or the money that uh, the federal government wanted to allocate on the national projects uh, was never fully allocated, and it was never like that's that's why Michustin was put in charge probably. But um, but there was some success. There were some successes. Some investments started, and um, and 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 uh, regional budgets were actually in a better state uh, at going into 2020. But the reserves that they had accumulated in 2019 were very quickly exhausted. So regional budgets, on the whole, uh, lost um, around f- uh, more than 500 billion rubles in uh, the first eight months of the year. And uh, they were not fully compensated, or rather, some of them were. Some of them were overcompensated, and some of them were only partially compensated. 
and there is no uh it, it's very difficult to dig into why some regions were compensated and some regions were not compensated uh people with uh wider and uh, more knowledge than me have struggled to understand this, and regions certainly struggle to understand this. But what this leads to is that it's very difficult to plan ahead. And so when it comes to the 2021 budgeting, um, regions don't know, uh, in most cases, how much money they can expect to get from the, uh, uh, from the federal center in addition to what they would normally they do not know whether cheap budgetary loans that the finance ministry has uh, tried to replace uh, loans from banks with in the past couple of years to just to ease the debt burden on regions. They, they, they don't know how quickly those loans will be exhausted or, or, or limited. So, and, and, it, and it rolls on. It rolls on to, to, to municipalities, which in turn uh, very often uh, heavily depend on regional budgets. So it's a multi-level problem, and in the end, since regions cannot really go bankrupt, uh, it, I know that uh, it, it's sometimes it, from time to time it comes up in in in, in Russian and in, in in foreign press that this region goes bankrupt and that, that region goes bankrupt. What happens is that um, regions uh, go illiquid, so to say, and and the finance ministry takes uh, them under its uh, strict strict stewardship and um and uh, uh regions lose the last vestiges of their financial autonomy until they are back on track and they can handle their debt they can handle their deficit so uh you know in the end the federal budget will have to foot the bill somehow but uh region but regional autonomy will suffer and at the same time i think talking about Again, a, a case study here. I think Khabarov, it also seems the case that regional governors, there's, I think the Kremlin has kind of laid down clearly that, you know, the, the room for charismatic policy that endears you to the population that's out ahead of, you know, national leadership um, is not acceptable. Is that safe to say? It, it, it is safe to say. Uh... It, that that's the that that's actually the big contradiction behind uh, what is what should be happening and what is happening. So uh, well, what should be happening is uh, uh, regions should probably, um, uh, in order to handle both the national projects. Uh, by the way, the national projects uh, were rolled back, as we know, from 2024 to 2030. But this doesn't mean that governors are not. Uh, are not evaluated based on whether they spend money on the national projects. They still are. So the spending targets are still there. It's just that regions now have all these other spending obligations in healthcare and so on that they will need to spend. So this just complicates uh, everyone's life, um, both with the national projects and with COVID, I think. Uh, the natural answer in a working federalism would be a federalist system would be to um, allow regional governors more uh, autonomy both fiscal and political and uh, so that they should not be always negotiating the next step with the federal center be it uh, uh, buying uh, equipment or high or uh, bailing out uh, local business um, or supporting investment, but that's also something that the that the Kremlin is trying to prevent because of what happened in 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 Habarovsk. Uh, I mean, not only because of that, but that was a 
a prime example of what the Kremlin is afraid of. That uh, here comes a government who was not even an, a, a non-systemic actor. Uh, he was very much a systemic uh, opposition politician who saw a, uh, an opportunity in a surprise electoral victory um, and uh, started hesitantly at first, but then in a certain regard, quite openly with the local population, expressing that that's where he was deriving his legitimacy from and not from the federal center. And, it's a dangerous thing to say as a, as a leader in Russia. Yes, and, and, and so uh, what we, like, if, 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 I'm, if, I, if I zoom out a little bit again, uh, what, 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 this, is, this return of regional politics uh, uh, is, is, is another big development that we have seen not only in 2020, but it, it, basically since 2018, or if I'm, if I'm going to be strict about it, then maybe since 2016, 2017, when a, uh, a looming debt crisis was averted, uh, but the money still uh, disproportionately went to Moscow, the capital, instead of um, allowing regions uh, a bit more uh, fiscal breathing space and development. And I see two two broad conflicts: elites, regional elites versus Moscow elites over rent. It, it it's not it's not always political. Uh, sometimes it's 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 about whether big state-owned companies are allowed to encroach on regions. Uh, for instance, in digital surveillance, we have seen or, or waste collection and, uh, and, 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 and sort of uh, take uh, opportunities away from companies connected to regional elites. And we see a growing animosity between the population of certain regions versus the federal government. And this is what we saw in Habarovsk, but it, there, are all, there are also other regions where, uh, for instance, the... Um, the environmental protests that we have seen uh, in several regions from the uh, from the Arkhangelsk Oblast, Komi Republic, uh, uh, Bashkortostan, were really mostly about bad governance and and uh, and an animosity towards a big company that was either seen as representing foreign like foreign as in Moscow interests or interests of of another part of the country or not even based in the region. So in these two conflicts, the regional political elites, for instance, governors uh, and, 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 and regional party members and deputies, I think increasingly notice that they can take sides, not completely freely, but they can sort of uh, strengthen their position in negotiating, for instance, with the center by opening up to uh, goal local movements. So this is more or less what the what the Habarovsk protests uh, and what the arrest of Sergei Fugal reflected this development and how ver how wary the Kremlin is of it. So I believe that go going ahead we will see more of these types of protests. I'm not sure if um, if, if we will see uh, a protest movement as unexpected and as vigorous and uh, large, and not only uh, because the uh, the Habarovsk protest movement's real strength was not just that in, in not, not just in its size and its uh, resilience in the region, but also that Russians in other regions heard about it 
and uh, and and it was on the political agenda not only in the harbor of Skry but also in other regions. And um, similarly, when it comes to the environmental protests, the Shias protests, which were against a uh, a landfill uh, yeah, in the oblast, way up north, in the Arhangelsk oblast, which uh, would have um, which, which would have been built for uh, uh, to accommodate uh, Moscow's uh, municipal waste. And the Kushto protests in Bashkortostan, which were, which which erupted against uh, the development of a sacred mountain, like industrial development of a sacred mountain. So those two protests also resonated outside their regions, and especially in the Kushto and Shias protests. The Kushto protesters learned from Shias protesters. There were contacts between the two protest movements. They copied uh, the Kushto protesters copied. Uh, the tactics of, 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 of the Shias protesters. So not all of these protests are going to be political, always. Uh, and they are certainly not, uh, in, in the case of the environmental protests, they are certainly not directed against Putin or against the central tenets of his system. But just by uh, sort of energizing the politics in the region and, and by forcing regional elites to react to these protests, uh, they have the potential to stir up politics between, stir up the, um, the, the contract between regional governors, regional political leaders, and federal political leaders. So uh, turning ahead now um, to 2021, uh, in the few minutes we have left, um, some big questions, I guess, remain on the radar for, for Putin, for his team. We have A, the need to uh, address COVID, you know, it's still looming large. Related, although not entirely related, there's Duma elections coming up, and we're already getting the initial polling, and this happens every time there are elections in Russia. Oh, uh, United Russia's support is down, they're doomed, it's going to be a disaster, and then, of course, political mobilization happens, United Russia gets the results it needs in most places, and this tends to be a trend. But looking ahead, kind of what signposts, signals are you looking for as 2021 develops that would might point us how things are going? So if, if you're staying for a second uh, at the Duma election, uh, one of the one of the big macro trends that in politics, in Russian politics, that I see in 20, see emerging in 2021 is a growing gap between what uh, Russians expect the policy outcomes that Russians expect from the system and the actual outcomes that the system is able to produce. So um, I have I have argued uh, back I think in uh, in August when the Duma changed um, the electoral law in order to 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 allow uh, three day voting uh, and uh, and allow the restriction of um, observers that um, for like. Tinkering with electoral rules and rigging have been part of, of, of Russian politics and Russian elections for for a long time, for decades. So that's nothing new. What is new is that throughout the first, let's say, 16, 17, 18 years of Putin's being in power in either as prime minister or president, uh, however rigged elections were, and they were not always rigged the same level, um, they, it was understood that elections broadly produced an outcome that that most of the voters if even if it didn't correspond exactly 
what they would have, would have voted for, they could live with. Now, what we have seen with the emergence of uh, Navalny's smart voting, which uh, the federal government is uh, trying very hard to suppress in uh, various ways, um, is that this gap has grown. Uh, this gap has grown uh, large enough to, for it to be uncomfortable for the Kremlin. So, for instance, if they, can, they, if, if they want to engineer a resounding victory with high turnout, as it happened in the constitutional plebiscite uh, this year, they are able to do it. But they have needed more and more uh, obvious and grotesque and uh, tinkering and rigging to make this happen. And um, this is, I don't think that a political system can support this kind of tension for long enough. The question is what happens if... Uh, if if this becomes unbearable, I I do think that that the if if the Kremlin really wants to, uh, it can guarantee United Russia a two thirds majority uh, next year, even as the uh, uh, party's um, uh, even as the party's uh, popularity rating is uh, around thirty percent nationally. But first of all, the electoral system is such, and 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 the rules governing elections and and are such that this can be guaranteed if 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 it if it needs to be guaranteed uh but the it, it might be an overreach if you know what i mean one of the one of the interesting things that happened this year was and maybe i uh, maybe i will leave it at this is that um putin's trust rating was falling much faster than his approval rating so this might not be this might not look like a major difference to any casual observer of Russian politics, but um, these are, so Putin's approval rating, it is, it is massaged very efficiently through states and uh, state-affiliated media, and, and it doesn't really tell us much about uh, his actual position, his actual popularity. So the approval rating is your traditional, you know, do you approve of the job that Putin is doing? The trust rating is an unprompted question. So they'll say, name your most trusted politician in in Russia. So what has fallen is people are volunteering Putin um, at an increasingly rare rate. Not that it's rare, you know, outright, but less than they used to. So yeah, that's exactly that's the important that's the important part. Um, he is still he's he's still the most trusted politician in Russia. Um, but his trust rating was falling much more precipitously than his approval rating, and uh, and 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 there were actually uh, points uh, there were there were there were points in in 2020 when you could see what that means in practice, what it could mean in practice. So, for instance, when Putin went live on air and promised COVID bonuses to COVID-related bonuses to medical personnel, and those bonuses were then not paid out or not fully paid out. Um, then uh, medical personnel uh, turned to Putin and started demanding. First of all, they started protesting and they started demanding the bonuses from Putin. And the real danger in that in that story for Putin was that he uh, promised something uh, promised something uh, popular, and then his order was not carried out for various reasons which 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 mostly have to do with uh, how uh you know regional government uh, regional governments handled and and then hospitals handled the uh, the payments of these bonuses but his orders are not carried out so um if if uh, your voters do not do not uh doubt your intention but they start to doubt your ability to implement your will that's when that's when 
things start to look very uncomfortable if you are Vladimir Putin. And if this trend continues into 2021, I think that also might be a sign that um, people trust is falling in the authenticity of this system. That you know, with all with, that with all these deficiencies and its lies and its contradictions, it is able to produce the outcomes that they want or that they can live with. Every once in a while, you know, it will turn out that people want something that the authorities are unable or unwilling to give it to them. To give to them, and the more often this happens, the more elections will matter, and the more elections will be able to accommodate a system like smart voting. And if that avenue is closed, then what happens is the question. And a big question to leave off on. Andres, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to hear from you. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all, folks. Thanks to Andres for joining and wishing you all a very happy and healthy holiday season. We really appreciate your support over the last year. Be sure to follow BNB Russia and Ukraine at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. BNB Russia and Ukraine is an initiative of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information on this project and on others, stop by fpri.org. We'll catch you next year.